0: emerged in the forefront of science. Fritjof-Capra can describe it. Physicist and systems theorist, founding director of the Center for Literacy, author of The Tao of Physics, The Hidden Connections, Belonging to the Universe. Capra has won many prestigious awards, including the Bioneers. He will discuss his major new work, The Systems View of Life, A Unifying Vision, on Thursday, June 26th at St. John's Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley. Mitch Jezerich will host this KPFA benefit. There's wheelchair access. Advanced tickets are at Brown Paper. Tickets.com or supportive bookstores. Further information on the KPFA website. For Fritschoff Capra's Unifying Vision, June 26th. As you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Stay tuned for Stone's Throw. Darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, June the 3rd, 2014. First, an apology. Last week, I talked about a new film on HBO, The Normal Heart, a play and screenplay written by Larry Kramer. The script is about the tragic years in the early 1980s when the AIDS epidemic first hit the gay community in New York. When I got to the studio today, uh, I had an email from a long-time listener telling me that Larry Kramer is alive. Now, I don't know how I got it wrong. I knew one day I'd I'd do that. What a gaffe. Uh, thank you, Constance, for setting me straight. And, Larry, I hope I get a chance to apologize to you personally one of these days. Chalk up a senior moment. For Jennifer, anyway uh, we are we're all human folks june June is here it's busting out all over that cheers me up. My skimpy little hibiscus plant has exploded i've got eight bright red blossoms. Have you ever noticed how uh when people get old like me, they pay more attention to plants than to people uh <laughs> It's true, they care more about the health of uh, the planet, about the grass, than about politics. Personal trumps the political, actually. Ah, uh, things narrow down. Rheumatism is worse than communism. Mortality focuses the mind Anyway, it focuses me. Get that now or never imperative. Last week... We lost Maya Angelou, an astonishingly now person. She never gave up. She never quit. She lived to be 86. She is survived by her son, also a poet. Now, I'd have to go back to the 1970s to remember uh, how much she taught me. Then I read her autobiography. I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, I used that book later in the classroom. You know, along with Richard Wright's Black Boy, James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. You know, the other books by black writers, the great American Uh, what poets and writers who gave us history from an individual's viewpoint. What hit me hardest about uh, Maya Angelou's, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, uh, was that woman thing. Maybe you remember Shirley Chisholm saying that she had more difficulty in her political career because of gender. More trouble over gender than race. You remember she ran for president back in the day before it was fashionable. Now, what Maya Angelou taught me was that the uh, trauma, tragedy, if you like, of her childhood uh, was centered on gender, basically. Gender trumped race uh, in her eight-year-old experience. This was so startling to me. I, I remember writing... For the women's newspaper plexus, and I, I used a review of the television version of, um, I know why the caged bird sings. The presence of the men in that movie was terrifying. Uh, she was raped by her mother's boyfriend. What a word, boyfriend. Uh, when her when her uncles killed the man. Murdered the rapist. She was so traumatized, she stopped speaking. This went on for years. She felt the incredible power of words because she realized that what she had said caused a man to die, to be killed. Uh, this went on for years. This silence. Her mother sent her down south to live with her grandmother and quiet, or, I don't know, rural. She found the right teacher there, a mentor, and she began her word work. Her life as a poet and artist who sang, danced, performed, wrote memoirs, wrote novels. Uh, Most Americans still remember her speech at uh, Kennedy's inauguration, She became a national icon at that point, a mother figure to so many. She worked with academics, taught, you know, she did that uh, right along with her work in popular culture. Ofra Winfrey became her friend and colleague. Uh, what, What kept her, held her in my thoughts all these years was... Her spirit, her joy in living, her persona, I guess we call that. (laughs) Once or twice, I looked at her and I thought, what is this Eleanor Roosevelt shtick? Isn't she being a bit grand? And then I thought about it hard and I thought, well, she is grand. But, you know, she had this terrific sense of humor, not about jokes. Uh, She had that sense of the absurd, sense of the depth of human Mm. folly. She was an entertainer. I mean, that's how she earned her living for decades. The books, her books turned her into a public figure. Uh, She took on the role, the role of a national treasure. You know, she did it graciously, Mm. village elder. You may remember her as the African grandmother of... Kunta Kinte in the TV series Roots. That was uh, a television series about the origins of slavery, the history of the African captives, uh, brought to the colonies and later uh, suffering in the early years of the United States. Uh, She was a powerful actor, uh, performer. And uh, Maya's dancing days were uninhibited. Her ethnic style and free form gave her a reputation during the Beatnik era. Beat generation understood her work. Later, she became a significant elder for all those who celebrate liberation, you know, freedom, free spirits. Anyway... Last week, I uh, dug in my files for the poets, all those black women writers who changed the world. Audre Lorde and Pat Parker, Nikki Giovanni, oh, so many. Uh, It just exploded. There was, of course, there's the novelist Toni Morrison. She won the Nobel Prize for Literature in the 1990s. Now, nothing was the same after that. Uh, Alice Walker is now a major, major mainstream literary figure in the world. Uh, There are scores of black women working in all the media from from a film screenplays to esoteric performance art. I remember plays like Ntusaki Shange's Four Colored Girls, who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. That play hit the culture like a tsunami in the 1970s. A film of that play, that uh, script, has hit the TV screen... It's on one of the premium channels. I watched it the other night, and it is scarcely recognizable as the original screenplay. Uh, (laughs) Oh, well, it's got Whoopi Goldberg and some others. But, you know, we all know what happens to theater art, plays, dramas, when the money men, the, the media dudes, become involved... Think about Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple, an award-winning uh, novel, which became a major motion picture in the hands of Steven Spielberg. But when he got through with it, there was not much left of the original work. Uh, what he created was something else, and well enough uh, But the novel was something else. It was certainly not a joyride. Anyway, I have come to feel that if popular films reach out to a wide audience, then, okay, more and more readers will find the original. That has to be good enough. I think of the films as uh, advertisements for the books. And the book is still out there, just as it was written. You know, uh, it's still there for each generation to find. Each decade, actually, not just each generation. Uh, I think, yes, more and more, every writer, every filmmaker at least, wants to take material and spin it, spin things a different way. Change style to suit the zeitgeist. Zeitgeist is the spirit of the age. Uh, You know, it is more and more difficult for thinkers, writers, to set forth their unique vision. I mean, to get it out there. Uh, TV, uh, those ad men, all conspire to flatten the expression... ...of artists who are doing something original, something new. If you go off the map, if you're idiosyncratic, uh, there's a pressure to water down your style, make it presentable, acceptable. I always like to remember what uh, Picasso said about the creation of new works of art. He said, the first time you create something, it will be ugly the effort to create something new will uh you know will show in the work it may be clumsy after that others can come along and make it beautiful of course (laughs) once they know how to do it you know but that's not the job of creative artists uh if you're just an illustrator well that's okay uh we need a lot of illustrators. They're everywhere. And they certainly make up 98% of what's on television. Uh, they make lovely, lovely things. Think of the movies of Franco Zeffirelli. He began as a designer for the stage. He filmed these operas. You remember La Traviata? That movie was so beautiful, it ached. But... Um, I think Seffarelli is not an innovator. The best of him can be found in a movie memoir I'm fond of. It's about his boyhood in Italy. It's called Tea with Mussolini. I highly recommend that movie because it's a homage to a group of women who lived in Florence during the 1930s, well up until through World War II. Now, Zeffirelli collected a group of women. Only Zeffirelli could do it. <laughs> I'm not saying that only a gay artist knows how to uh, how to use women in a film, but he did go for all these uh, middle-aged or older women. They were the ones that we love, well, that I love, my special people, most of them British. He put them in the same place, and he gave them... Very free range to do what each one does best. You know, Maggie Smith, as the British ambassador's widow, she thinks that since she had tea with Mussolini before the war, she will be safe in the fascist regime. (laughs) Naive to the point of idiocy, of course. Uh, the threat is obvious. Uh, there's a Jewish glamour girl in the movie, an art collector played by Cher. And, uh, of course, she's in serious danger. And Maggie Smith actually has to bail her out, and Maggie Smith has no use for her at all. Uh, anyway, all these women at one point are incarcerated. <laughs> and they have. They have trouble getting along, but they manage. We get Judy Dench as a passionate amateur artist. You know, she's trying to cover up, put, put sandbags in front of these great murals, and she's afraid that sandbags will touch the art, but she wants to save them from the bombs, you know. Lily Tomlin, uh, plays the raining dyke. Joan Plowright is a woman who took care of the young Zeffirelli, the boy, when his father neglected him. It's as if Zeffirelli was paying his debt to these two women, to actresses he admires. Uh, I don't know if it's a gay sensibility. I've quit trying to to, uh, define that. Could be, could be. I just know I've enjoyed uh, his work. Ever since I saw his early film, of Romeo and Juliet, remember, long ago, never mind that he cut most of the lines, I did wince when I saw Zeffirelli's version of Jane Eyre. Oh, boy. That French actress, oh, Lord. She isn't bad in melancholia, but I digress. I obviously... Free association is my downfall. (laughs) Anyway, I did notice in Jane Eyre all the inner angst was gone. All that narration that Charlotte Bronte brought to the novel. You know, she was creating an Anglican uh, romance. Uh. (laughs) Anyway, the Jane Eyre whose staunch Calvinist spine is trapped by her sensual, lustful love for what Charlotte Bronte called a lord of creation. No kidding, that's what she called the the guy Rochester. He was a lord of creation. (laughs) Oh gosh, how did I get all the way to the Brontes? That's no use trying to be linear. I just go off. The truth is that women writers, for me, are all part of a whole. They're all kind of on a tree. Their roots are in the past. The limbs go everywhere and anywhere. The leaves just fall off, you know. We just shed things as we get tired of some of our excesses, some of our foolish efforts. Sometimes writers are a rope kind of historical rope going down into the past, into the, well, into the well of consciousness. Uh, Each one is a knot uh, on the rope. Bit by bit, we climb out of darkness. Uh, The enlightened generation, that is, the women writers of today, are certainly as liberated as any male writer. That's true, and you know how liberated male writers are. Yep. We must just keep keeping on. Find the next knot and untie the lie. The latest lie is the one that tells the world there is no distinction between males and females. As if being equal means being the same. Androgyny is not about uh, combining masculine and feminine. It's not about sharing our traits and our instincts. Androgyny is about being what Virginia Woolf called woman-manly or man-womanly. It's kind of hard to think about, of course. Comes later in life, possibly middle age, old age, but young people have uh, the capacity. It's very easy to understand it when you see it. Maya Angelou was woman, capital W, woman, many times over. But when she was woman manly, she was profound, incredibly strong. And now she is with the ancestors. She is one of the immortals. Someone who, while she lived, was the mother, a mother to us all. What I actually brought today in my book pile, I had all these plans to follow up on Larry Kramer's uh Larry Kramer's movie, Would You Believe? Yes, talk about. Talk about free association and uh, stuff that's not related, but of course it is related. I was going to do James Baldwin's book, Giovanni's Room. I just was going to do this because I I wanted to help people understand what it was like in the 50s to write about, uh, gay human beings. Now, a gay black writer was just off the charts. Uh, I think a lot of black writers, male anyway, couldn't handle James Baldwin's, uh, spin. Giovanni's Room is just, well, let's say it's, uh, say it's historic see if I've got time. Let me give you just a little, 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 little piece of James Baldwin's picture of his first love. I have not thought of that boy, Joey, for many years, but I see him quite clearly tonight. It was several years ago. I was still in my teens. He was about my age, give or take a year, a very nice boy, too, quick and dark, always laughing. For a while, he was my best friend. Later, the idea that such a person could have been my best friend was proof of some horrifying taint in me. So I forgot him. But I see him very well tonight. It was in summer. There was no school. His parents had gone someplace for the weekend. I was spending the weekend at his house near Coney Island. Uh, We lived in Brooklyn, too, in those days, but in a better neighborhood than Joey's. Uh, I think we had been lying around the beach, swimming a little, and watching the near-naked girls pass, whistling at them and laughing. I'm sure that if any of the girls we whistled at that day had shown any signs of responding, (laughs) the ocean would not have been deep enough to drown our shame and terror. Footnote here. In this description, uh, James Baldwin, I'm guessing, is not the narrator, he's Joey. Anyway, the girls no doubt had some intimation of this possibly from the way we whistled, so they ignored us (laughs) Uh, I think it began to shower I know that I felt something as we were horsing around in that small steamy room stinging each other with wet towels (laughs) anyway it was mysterious I remember in myself a heavy reluctance to get dressed I blamed it on the heat But we did get dressed, sort of. We ate cold things out of his icebox. There's an old word, icebox. And we drank a lot of beer. We must have gone to the movies. Can't think of any other reason for going out. I remember walking down the dark, tropical Brooklyn streets. He coming up from the pavements. Ah, let's see. I, let's see, I walked with my arm around Joey's shoulder, proud, I think, because his head came just below my ear. Joey was making dirty wisecracks, and we were laughing. It's odd to remember, for the first time in so long, how good I felt that night. How fond of Joey. Anyway, the scene goes on, um, they finally get to the bedroom and go to bed, and Then suddenly, Joey wakes up and examines his pillow with great ferocious care. What's the matter? I think a bed bug bit me. You slob, you got bed bugs? I think one bit me. Ever have a bed bug bite you before? No, go back to sleep, you're dreaming. He looked at me with his mouth wide open, dark eyes very big. It was as though he had just discovered that I was an expert on bed bugs. I laughed and grabbed his head as I had done God knows how many times before when I was playing with him or when he had annoyed me. But this time, when I touched him, something happened in him and in me which made this touch different from any touch either of us had ever known. He did not resist as he usually did, but lay where I had pulled him against my chest. I realized that my heart was beating in an awful way and that Joey was trembling against me and the light in the room was very bright and hot. I started to move, to make some kind of a joke. But Joey mumbled something and I put my head down to hear. Joey raised his head as I lowered mine and as if by accident we kissed. Then for the first time in my life, I was really aware of another person's body, of another person's smell. We had our arms around each other. It was like holding in my hand some rare, exhausted, nearly doomed bird, which I had miraculously happened to find. I was very frightened. I'm sure he was frightened, too. We shut our eyes. I have to bust into this incredibly romantic scene because my time is up. Anyway, uh it's about the first act of love between these two young men. And if you want to find this, you've got to go get a copy of James Baldwin's book from the 1950s. It's called Giovanni's Room. I remember at the time... uh we thought nothing would ever, ever again be the same. James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room. This has been Jennifer Stone with uh, Stone Throw. I'll be back again next week at this same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. KPFA's omnibus half-hour of interviews devoted to the arts will now be heard on Wednesdays, 3.30 to 4 in the afternoon, following cover-to-cover cover with Jack Foley at 3 p.m. for a full hour of arts programming. Open Book features Nina Serrano on poetry, Jovelin Richards on performance in the visual arts, Richard Walensky on Bay Area Theater, and Raina Cowan on film. So join Open Book at its new time, Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. on KPFA, KPFB, and KFCF, Pacifica Radio in Northern and Central California. KPFA, KPFP in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. Stay tuned for Workweek Radio. Radio.